I'm ready to dive into God's word. Oh my goodness, we're, we're, we're here. Uh, let's dive in. <laughs> For those of you that are just joining us, we are on a series called All In. And really what this has been is a study in the book of Acts. And I chose this series title not only because it's a district, uh, I'm sorry, uh, um, description of what we see with the early church, which was a group of people who were all in in their faith, in their walk with Christ. But this series is meant to be a call for all of us to be all in. Now, just in case you're wondering, well, what's that mean and what's that look like? Well, first of all, I think it should look something like what we're reading about here in the book of Acts. I mean, when you think about Scripture wasn't written so that we could just have a good understanding of our Christian roots or be able to pass a biblical history test, but the Scripture was written in order that we would know how to live. Listen to what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I love this verse right here for a lot of reasons. One is because it reminds me that the Bible isn't like any other book in the world. Each of its authors, they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is what it means whenever the scripture says that it is God-breathed. Now, I don't know if you've ever considered this or not, but there are right at three times in the Bible where it mentions God breathing upon something. The first time is whenever God breathed into man the breath, uh, the breath of life <clears throat> and man became a, a living being. The second time is when Jesus breathed into the disciples and said to them, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And then here's the third time, which is what we're reading about now, where God breathed out Scripture. And all three of those things have two things in common. They were all from God, and they all brought about life. Which, by the way, was the exact purpose for why Jesus came to this earth. Jesus himself said it in John 10.10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So the call to be all in is for us having life and having it in abundance. And this is exactly what we see here with the early church. But watch this. They didn't have an easy life. As a matter of fact, they were about to face some unthinkable persecution. Yet in the midst of all of their trials and their tribulations, they were filled with joy. And they were bold. They had the peace of God upon them that surpassed the understanding. The circumstance didn't dictate nor could it hinder the work that God was doing in them. You see, the Bible teaches us that he who began a good work in us, he will bring it about to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And what that means is as long as you are alive, there is still something that God wants to do both in you and through you. Now, let me just pick up where we left off last week. At the beginning of Acts chapter 4, we read about Peter and John being arrested for preaching the gospel. 
Their words caused the establishment to be greatly annoyed and disturbed. And as I mentioned last week, the preaching of the gospel will always do that. And if it doesn't do that, then you might want to check whether you're actually preaching the gospel or not. The gospel must always include man's need for God. It speaks to the truth that we all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. You see, man cannot in his own strength and ability reconcile himself to God. I think this is where oftentimes people get tripped up because they think that they can get right with God with their own good works. But friend, you cannot do enough good works to be in right standing with God. Because if you could have, then Jesus would not have needed to come to earth and to offer his life as a sacrifice and a payment for our sins. But the good news is that though we can't reconcile ourselves to God, Jesus has made a way to reconcile us through the shedding of his own blood. He calls us to repent of our sins, which that means to change our way of thinking and to change our way of living. And then he invites us to place our faith in him. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, for it is by grace. There's that word grace. We're going to talk about that a lot today. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Like that part needs to be highlighted for all the people that think, but I'm a good person and I'm going to go to heaven. Did you know that good people don't go to heaven? Let me say it louder so people in the back can hear. Ha, right? (laughs) Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. I said forgiven. There's none who is good. Jesus said in himself, no, not one. But forgiven people do. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. Impossible to do it by yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You see, it's this promise right here that gives us eternal life. The promise also of providing us with everything that we need for a godly life, but also the promise of heaven. And it's this message that we're talking about right here that the world has a problem with. Because watch this, man's proclivity is to say, I do not have need of God. Like the things that I have in my life, I have them because I worked hard for them. But you see, what the world doesn't understand is that we would have nothing were it not from God. Not only that, but we certainly cannot reconcile ourselves to God. Only Jesus can do that. And this was the message that Peter and John were preaching. And so while on one hand, many believed the message of the gospel and were saved, there were those that this message disturbed. And so they charged them to no longer speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. But how many of you know that not much has changed in the last 2,000 years? Because all over the world, followers of Jesus are being told to be silent. And in many parts of the world, they've been killed as a result of their faith in Christ and their refusal to be silent. As a matter of fact, we've got a a video that we're going to show you next week about the persecuted church. And it would blow your mind as to some of the things that's going on in the world. Uh, I read earlier this week... This is from the International Institute for Religious Freedom. They say that, and I picked the lower end, but they say that right at 9,000 Christians are martyred every single year. 
although there's a lot. Some would even say that it's as high as 100,000. But even if you go with the lower number, the 9,000, that means that 25 Christians will be killed, will be martyred today because of their faith in Jesus. Lifeway Research said that in the past year, 360 million Christians, or one in seven believers around the world, have suffered significant persecution because of their faith. Not somebody just laughing at you because you have a Christian t-shirt on or a fish bumper sticker on your car, but significant persecution. Now, I know I talked a little bit about this last week, but I want you to know that persecution of believers for their faith in Jesus Christ is not declining, but rather it's increasing. They said that last year we saw a 24% increase in Christians being killed for their faith. Now, if you weren't here last week, can I just say, please go listen to that message. I know I always say that, but really, please go and listen to last week's message. They knew and they understood, and, and, and the, they picked up on this. The disciples knew what was coming right here. And what I want to highlight is how that even here in our nation, we're seeing that start to happen. And, and again, we talked about it last week, but whenever Peter and John uh, saw what was coming, what happened? They became bold, but then the Bible says, like once they came out of it, they even prayed for more boldness. I mean, when they saw what was coming, um, they knew that there was a spiritual battle that was going on for the souls of men and women. And they understood that the devil wasn't just going to allow them to proclaim the life-saving message of the gospel unhindered. And so what did they do? They prayed for more boldness. You know, there's a time, church, and hear me on this. There's a time when our prayers aren't to be God remove me or remove the opposition because the Bible says there's going to be opposition, there's going to be trials. But what we pray is that we become bold in the midst of that opposition. And this is where we left off last week. So let's read the rest of the chapter. Acts chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said, that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, what we see in this first verse is kind of similar to what we read in Acts 2.42, where the believers were of one heart and one soul, and they had all things in common. Now, this phrase right here, all things in common, it means that whatever is mine is also yours. And we have a similar phrase that we uh, say, you've probably heard it in Spanish, mi casa es su casa, right? Which means my house is your house, although we normally just kind of mean that in terms of make yourself at home. Whereas the early disciples, they literally meant what my, is mine is yours, and let me just bring some clarity to what's happening here because I think that some would love to see this particular verse through the eyes of socialism. 
thinking that it's a, a for, uh, like a pure form of communism. But they couldn't be any more wrong. This is not communism. This is communism. And there's a huge difference between the two. Communism is enforced. Communism is voluntary. Communism says what's yours is mine. Communism says what's mine is yours. Are you following with me, church? Because there's a big difference between the two. Now, maybe you're here and you're wondering, well, why was there such need in the early church at Jerusalem? You ever thought about that? Well, the answer is really pretty simple when you dive into it. Um, the majority of the jobs in Jerusalem were related to the temple. And who ran the business of the temple? The Sadducees. And the Sadducees deemed Christians their enemy. So following Jesus meant that they would lose their job. But watch this. It wasn't a problem because the church came together and they supported one another. They lived in true community. But this giving and this sharing wasn't something that they were forced to do, but they gave voluntarily. You know, this is why you often hear me say, church, that we don't have to give. We get to give. Because there's a blessing that we receive whenever we give. And we see this blessing in many different ways in the early church. Because in verse 33 it says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Now I want you to underline in your Bible where it says great power and great grace. The early church, they stood boldly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They did not cower nor remain silent. And they gave of all that they owned, making sure that everyone's needs were taken care of. And as a result, great power and great grace came upon all of them. Let me ask you something. What, what would you like to have in your life in terms of with great power and great grace? And what areas of your life do you need some great power and some great grace? Can I just say this to you? Take it. It's yours. Take it. This is your invitation. Take it. It's yours. God isn't holding back on you. Like God isn't just giving something to what he gave to the early church 2,000 years ago. The same God who moved on behalf of the early church is the same God that we serve today. The only thing that has changed is his church. Because I don't see the same level of boldness in Christians, at least not in our country that I see here in the book of Acts. Is it okay if I'm honest? Talk about the elephant in the room? I don't see the same level of, of giving and sharing of things that God has blessed us with like I see here in Acts. So could it be that it's for this reason that we're not seeing this great power and this great grace upon the church today here in our nation? Now let me just say this, disclaimer. Now I do see this with some. Okay? Matter of fact, I see that with many of you. But church, if this series is anything, it's a call for all of us, not just a few of you, but for all of us to be all in. Then we will see what we've been reading about here in the book of Acts. We will see great power amongst the church. 
By the way, this word right here, power, this is the exact same word that Jesus uses in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 whenever he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. This word right here, power, you've heard me teach this before, is the Greek word dunamis. And it literally means miracle working power. It means the ability to do what you could never do in your own strength and ability. And the scripture says that they were experiencing this dunamis. They were experiencing this great power. By the way, great power, this means that it was great beyond what was normal or average. Like greater means greater in measure, and it also even means greater in number. But watch this, doesn't that make sense when you think about it? Because God has called us to greater and greater things, right? He's called us to go from glory to glory. But I want you to notice the sequence by which we see the power of God move. The early church spoke boldly in the name of Jesus, and as a result, great power came upon them. Let me ask you something. What bold step do you need to take in your life right now? For some of you, I don't know, maybe it's a new job. Perhaps you've been comfortable where you are, but God wants you to step out. He wants you to step out and be used in new ways. Hmm, that's on, some, that's on somebody right there. For others of you, maybe it's getting more connected with other believers, like perhaps joining a community group or just simply being more intentional in discipleship, both of giving it and of receiving it, because we all need to give and make disciples and be discipled, amen? I always teach this to my staff often. I said there always needs to be someone who's above you, beside you, and below you. Above you means someone who's a little bit older than you, a little bit wiser than you, and that can speak truth into your life. You need someone beside you who's at the same field. You're kind of going out doing it with them, and someone who's under you. Not that you're better than them, and anyone's better than anyone, but someone that you can pour into the experience and the knowledge and the wisdom that you have. Are you with me? Another bold step that God may be calling you to is to be a giver. Now, there's a lot of different ways that we can be givers, right? But one simple and easy way is to tithe, which, by the way, simply means returning back to God 10% of what he has already given you and entrusted to you. By the way, that is what a tithe is. It's God seeing if he can trust us with what is already his. And with our act of giving comes a promise. Matter of fact, it's the promise that Jody read earlier. We, we say it every single week as part of our giving declaration that God will see to it that we have everything that we need, that we'll have food to eat, that he will rebuke the devourer for our sake, and that the floodgates of heaven will be poured into our lap. But understand this, as with many promises in the Bible, that is an if-then promise. God says, if you will do this, then I will do that. Now, I want us to also look at that other phrase that I asked you to underline, where it says, great grace was upon all of them. Again, great means greater in measure and greater in number. So what is great grace? Well, if you've been in church for any length of time, you know that grace is unmerited favor. It's God giving us what we could never earn. In Acts chapter 4, Luke called it great grace. John Newton called it amazing grace. The apostle John says that we received grace upon grace. 
I like to call that exponential grace. And when the Apostle Paul was facing some trials and difficulties, like we talked about a little earlier in that word that God put in my heart for someone, Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Which tells me that both grace and power go hand in hand. And I simply say that just to ask, what is it that you have need of in your life right now? Hebrews 4, 16. This verse right here could be a verse of itself. How do you teach this in a short period of time? Man, let us then, us, hmm, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is so good. I want you to chew on that just for a minute. The scripture says that we can go to God confidently. Now, that's crazy when you think about it. Really? Coming before the throne of God with confidence? Yes, because that's what grace does, right? Grace looks at us and says that we are justified before God. In other words, justified, think of it this way. It's justified, not sinned, right? He makes us reconciled before God, and we can go to him, the scripture says, in time of need. We can find grace. We can find his unmerited favor in time of need. But I, I put all caps on this particular verse uh, when I wrote this out because the key element here is to draw near. Like if we're going to experience these things, if you have a need in your life, you've got to draw near. And I'm convinced as we talk about the presence of God, and that's really what we need is the presence of God, right? Not the presence, like, you know, Christmas presents, but the presence. Are you with me? Not just what his hand can give us, but him himself. But if you want the presence of God, you've got to be present with God. See, the promise that Jesus gave Paul when he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Watch this. It has not lost its expiration date for your life. His grace is still sufficient for you. Now, what's that mean practically? That means that though sorrow may last through the night, guess what? His joy comes in the morning. That means that his peace leads us. It guards us. It protects us. It means that he promises to meet all of our needs when we seek first the kingdom of God, which means that we become Better parents, better spouses, better disciples. It means that we display the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It means whenever we're in the marketplace, the light of Jesus is evident in everything that we do and we say. It means if someone were to look at our bank statement, oh, not that. Someone said the uh, most sensitive nerve in the body is the one that goes from the heart to the wallet, right? <laughs> but we should be able to open our bank statement and show what we really value in life. It means that we're kind to people. It means that we're gracious to people, especially people who don't deserve it. Why? Because you didn't deserve grace. Are you with me? The early church acted in boldness. 
And they experienced great power and great grace. And as a, script, as a result, the scripture says that they sold their lands and their homes, and they gave the money to the apostles to distribute it to where needs were. The early church saw to it that the needs of the people were met. How many of you know that is part of our responsibility as a church? Like we are to fund our missionaries, we are to advance the, the kingdom of God, like what the scripture says in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, we're to advance the kingdom here, the, the proclaiming of the gospel here, but also even out into the nations. But another part of what we're called to is to take care of our widows, to take care of our orphans, right? Right? We, we, we are to take care of the, uh, let me say it this way, and, and, and I think that we, we've got to understand this because oftentimes we don't realize that there, there's need in our church. Like there's not a week that goes by that I don't hear about a need. And we are to tend to two things. One, the household of faith. That's what the scripture calls it. The household of faith means the people within the church body. And there are needs in this church body. Believe it or not, there's a lot of needs here. So, right, and we're to tend to those needs, but we're also to meet the needs of our community as we share the gospel with them. We have a really good system for that. We've finally gotten where we're pretty good at it now after 10 years, all right? Now, at the end of this chapter, we read about this man named Joseph, whom the disciples called him Barnabas, which the Bible says means son of encouragement. And Barnabas owned a field and he sold it. Then he took that money and he placed it at the feet of the apostles. Now we're going to read a lot more about Barnabas a little later on in the book of Acts. But Barnabas was an encourager. And, and clearly we, we see that because that's why he's given this new name or this nickname by the apostles, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And the first way that we see him encouraging people is with his finances. Have you ever thought of your giving as a way to encourage someone or your finances as a way of encouraging someone? Some of you might be like, hey, I could do, use a little encouragement like that right there, right? Well, I love this, that I love that Barnabas understood that what he had was something that God had given him. You know, I've been both on the giving and the receiving end of encouragement. And I'm going to tell you, it is definitely a form of encouragement. I remember the very first year that we started Destiny, my dad had called me, and, uh, and I was discouraged. Is it okay to, for a pastor to admit that from time to time he gets discouraged? I get discouraged from time to time. Um, I'm not perfect. You need a perfect pastor, go find a perfect church, and, but don't go because it won't be perfect any longer once you go. But I get discouraged from time to time. And um, I remember I was discouraged, and I, I'd called my dad, and um, I said, yo, dad, I'm a little discouraged. I was like, I said, man, this week, uh, I, and in particular, I remember that week, like, we didn't even have enough in, in the offering to, like, pay rent. Like, like my tithe paid rent then, <laughs> like, right? Like, Chris and Jody's bank account paid rent that week. And um, so my dad was still in New Mexico, and a, a friend of mine, who I'm not going to say his name, but a friend of mine asked my dad how we were doing. And dad says, I'm doing pretty good. He says, I think he's a little discouraged this week. And then my friend says, oh, he goes, well, maybe I'll send him a little encouragement. And I got an encouragement in the form of a check of $10,000 about five days later. And how many of you know that that will encourage someone? Come on now, right? Come on, respond to me. Somebody ain't going to give you that $10,000. Well, I ain't going to give it to him or her. Because somebody says, no, I'll receive that, right? 
But yeah, I love that Barnabas understood that what he had was something that God had given him. And when we begin to see that the things that we have in our life are not just because we've worked hard for them, but watch this, everything that we have from God is on loan from him. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes from heaven above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. I think this is one of the reasons many believers have yet to tithe or to give to various causes. They don't realize that everything that they have is God's. And when you have a shift in your understanding of recognizing everything that I got is God's, and so God, you know, you spend it as you will, um, there's a blessing that comes. Um, Several years ago, Jody and I were meeting with a couple, and during that meeting, uh, God told me to give them $5,000. And, um, and I'll be honest with you, it's even difficult for me to talk about this uh, because I don't like to talk about this stuff. And the Lord says, no, you need to teach this to your people. And so it's the only reason I'm even talking about this, but um, I did pray about it first. But God told me to give them $5,000, this particular couple, and um, now maybe you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, that's cool. You know, um, you should give the $5,000, Pastor, <laughs> right? Um, and I did. But at first I thought to myself, man, like I worked hard to get that. Like $5,000 is a lot for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean? It took me a while. And some of y'all are like, yeah, I get it. it. It took me a while to get to that point. And um, I had saved up that money to buy a boat, <laughs> And um, now for those of you that would say, well, money can't buy happiness, uh, I agree. But it can buy you a boat. <laughs> and it can buy you a truck to pull it. Come on, some of y'all understand that reference. Those of you that don't, you're more holy than the rest of us, okay? <laughs> but I heard the Holy Spirit say, if you give the $5,000, I will give you a boat. Honestly, I got to tell you that even if God hadn't said that, I still would have given it. But I gave it, and it wasn't from my tithe. It was in addition to my tithe. It was above it. Um, and can I just say that Jesus wasn't kidding whenever he said it's greater to give than receive. This couple was very grateful to receive the gift, but I got to tell you that both Jody and I were the ones who were the most blessed that day. Not only that, but I eventually got a boat. Ah, there we go. Church, I think that it's a little uh, a cliche to say we're blessed to be a blessing, but it's absolutely true. Barnabas' gift was mentioned in Scripture. Sink your teeth into that for those of you that have a problem with us talking about money. By the way, go ahead, you know, dive in. I dare you. Jesus talked more about money than he did heaven and hell combined. Are, are you hearing me? I'm just throwing that out there for the people. Well, I don't like it when we talk about it. Well, then you're not going to like what Jesus had to say if you read the Bible because he talks about it left and right. And so evidently, the Holy Spirit uh, prompted Luke to write about this, what we just read and what we're about to read in the scripture because of his act of generosity. Whenever that gift was given, you can also just be assured that it was used to advance the kingdom of God. But what I want us to do now is I want us to turn over to Acts chapter 5, because we're going to read about another couple who also gave a gift, yet they did so with a wrong heart. Let's read it. Acts 5, we're going to read about somewhere around 10 or 11 verses. 
It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, and Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came to him, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have carried, who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And then great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. You know, one of the things that I love about going through Scripture uh, chapter by chapter is that it forces us to look at things that ordinarily we may want to opt to not talk about, right? Um, but I've found that oftentimes the things that we don't want to talk about are probably the things that we need to talk about. Now, we know that there's a lot more that Luke could have pulled from this encounter, but I think that there's enough information given here to pull some important truths. And so let's just follow the trail of what led up to this. God was moving. The Holy Spirit had been poured out. Miracles were happening. The disciples were displaying boldness as they proclaimed the gospel. We see opposition starting to come from the establishment, but it only fueled the fire in the hearts of the believers. And we see an uncommon generosity where people were selling the things that they owned and they're giving it to the church. And now we have Barnabas, who probably had given a large amount. And with that came a little recognition. Not that Barnabas was looking for recognition. Let me say that again. Not that Barnabas was looking for recognition. As a matter of fact, I'm quite certain that Barnabas's act of generosity... It wasn't so that he could get his name written in the Bible. Like he didn't even know that it would be. But rather he simply wanted Jesus' name to be spread all throughout the world. But Ananias and his wife Sapphira, surely they saw what Barnabas did. And they thought to themselves, man, it'd be really cool to have that kind of recognition. And so they came up with the plan. Let's just sell our land. But rather than giving it all to the apostles, they, they decided that they would keep some of the money back and just give part of it. Now, here's the thing about this story. Ananias and his wife, they could have sold the land and just given a, a portion of the proceeds, and that would not have been a problem. Are you with me? Peter even says that very thing, right? He says, when you sold it, you could have done whatever you, you want with it, but they lied about how much they got for it. 
and saying, oh, we just sold it for $5,000, and here, we're giving you all 5000 of it. They kept some back from themselves, and as a result, both died at that very moment. Now watch this. This is, again, this is one of those scriptures that's like, well, let me just skip the beginning of Acts chapter 5 and move on a little bit later. But I think we have to dive into this because I think what it does sometimes is it forces us, like I said, to, to look at the scripture. And, and for some of you, I know this may challenge your understanding of who God is. But I also think this is where we often cherry pick the things that we, we like about God. Like, for example, we love his grace. We love his mercy. We love his forgiveness. We love his provision. Yet God is also just. And because he's just, he acts justly. And his justice is carried out by what he considers just, not what we deem just. Are you with me? Listen, we love to talk about the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the presence in his life, and thank God for both. Amen? Thank God for both. But also know this, that the scripture says in John 16, verse 8, that whenever the Holy Spirit does come, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I promise you that verse is in your Bible. Now, I'm actually glad that I get to teach this because I believe that in the American church, we have lost the fear of God. What I mean is, we talk so carelessly about God. Or maybe I should say, so little about God. And we live our lives in such a way as if we are not going to stand before him one day. Do you know why I say some of the things that I say to you guys? Well, it's clearly not because I'm trying to pull a crowd here. But watch this. What I want is, is I want you to be true disciples. And not only that, I know that I will stand before God one day. Do you know the Bible says, and I think about this often, quite often. Matter of fact, I think about it every single time that I get up here because it's real easy. I came from a mega church. You know what that is? Church of 5,000. I work for one. I know how to move a crowd. I know how to fill every seat in this place. I don't want to fill every seat in this place. I want to build disciples and hearts that are on fire for Jesus. If we have a 1,000 people in here and they're all lukewarm, I have failed as a pastor. But if we've got 150 or 200 that are on fire from God that go out, yes, are you with me? Friends, we need more of the fear of the Lord in our lives. We need more of the fear of the Lord. We need to live our lives in such a way that we understand that God is going to reward each person according to what they have done. Now, if you don't believe that's true, let me just tell you the exact words of Jesus in Matthew 16, 27. He says, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. Then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Now, let me just say, because I don't want there to be any, any confusion in the house. I'm not saying that Ananias and Sapphira went to hell. Are, are you with me? The Bible just says that they just died. I actually believe that they were believers and that they're going to be in heaven, right? I believe that. But friends, our actions carry consequence. Are you with me? I think that many people believe that grace just means that they won't ever have to be held accountable for their actions. 
Sure, great, God's grace is there to offer uh, us forgiveness, but we must recognize that there are consequences that come as a result of our choices. And that's what we see right here with Ananias and Sapphira. But watch this. Notice what the next verse says. And this is where we're going to end for today. Verses 12 through 16. The very first, next verse says, now. As in, all right, let's move on. This is what happened. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together, there's that word again, in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. How awesome would that be that we start having a revival as such right here at Destiny Church, that people start coming from surrounding cities to be a part. I see that day. I hope to God that you see it and that you'll be a part of it. So many signs and wonders were being done, it says. And it says that they would bring the sick from all around, right? All the, the towns of Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who are afflicted with unclean spirits. And watch this, they were all healed. So immediately following the death of Ananias and Sapphira, the kingdom kept advancing. Now there's a lot of takeaways that we can pull from this. But the one that hits me the most is this. Regardless of what happens, regardless of what happens in our church, regardless of what happens in my family, regardless of what happens in my life, the kingdom of God must, it must, and it will move forward. Now, I think this is a good place for us to put in a pen for next week, but let me just leave you with this thought. Are you ready? The past is behind. Learn from it. The future is ahead. Prepare for it. The present is here. Live in it. Whereas in the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.13, brothers, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it. In other words, none of us here is perfect. We've not arrived yet. That's what Paul's saying. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward Amen. Come on, stand to your feet with me if you would. Y'all receive God's word this morning. You know, there's so much for us to learn from the book of Acts. But if there's an overall theme, it's that we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need him to live in community together. I think that might be the reason that some of you haven't dived into community yet. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to put up with one another sometimes, right? Like, we, we need that. We, we need the, the power of the Holy Spirit to live in community. We need him to serve. We need him to live holy lives. We need his strength. We need his power. We need his wisdom. We need his love because, watch this, we can't muster up love on our own strength and ability. It's only 
because of the grace of God that his love has been poured out upon us and then through us. Amen? So I just want us to end as we get ready to go back into worship by just asking the Spirit of God to just fill us afresh this morning. Can we do that right now? Come on, let's pray. Father, we just ask you, God, to fill us with your precious Holy Spirit. Lord, breathe upon us, oh God. Breathe upon us, Father. God, cause, Lord, a fire to be lit in our hearts, God. Lord, may we be all in for you, Lord. We lean in, Lord, to your grace. We lean into your power. We lean into your love. We lean into your wisdom, God. We thank you, Father, that you have promised to provide for us everything that we need for a godly life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We come before you, Lord, before your throne of grace, Lord God, confidently, Lord, seeking you, Lord God, knowing, Lord, that you will meet us, Lord, in our time of need. So fill us afresh this day, Lord. Fill us afresh, Father. Come on, just to receive from God. Fill us afresh, God. Lord, give us what we need, Lord God, as we go out, Lord, being a light to the world, being a city on a hill. May we be the fragrance of Christ, Lord, by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. And all the church says, amen.